Okay, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We will be looking at Luke 21, verses 25 through 36 this morning. Let's pray. Father, may Your grace, the grace of the words of our Lord Jesus in this text, rest upon our souls as sweet. May we hear every day in our lives His exhortation. Stay awake. Be ready. The end is coming for the salvation of all who have loved His appearing. Do this to the glory of Your name and through my lips speaking accurately that which this text reveals. Amen. There is a message in the Olivet Discourse to us this morning and that message over all that you'll hear it is this and it's very practical be awake daily in your life to be faithful to the Lord Jesus and to not be caught up into the desires of your flesh which will sabotage your life. But if you were here last week or listened to it on the internet, you know this is week two in dealing with the Olivet Discourse. We call it that because Matthew and Mark let us know it's given on the Mount of Olives, though Luke doesn't specifically say that. Let me summarize first what I said last week. If you look down at your text in Luke 21, verses 5 through 24 took place in the first century. Jesus prophesied them and they were fulfilled during A.D. 33 to A.D. 70. In other words, it's all past. It has been fulfilled with the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The flow of what happened was simply this. Jesus, look at these massive buildings and stones and how beautiful the temple is. It was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And Jesus said to them, as they're looking at it from the Mount of Olives now, all of it will be utterly destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And then His disciples ask Him in their shock, when? And what will be the signs? And Jesus says, first of all, these are not the signs. Life will be going on with wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and famines and persecutions. Some of you put to death. You'll hear people saying the Messiah is out here and over there. All of that stuff is normal throughout this age. And it will be normal for the next 40 years 
until the temple comes down in AD 70. Those are not the signs. But, he said, there is a sign. And when you see it, flee Jerusalem. Get out of town fast. Because the temple in Jerusalem will shortly be destroyed. And here's the sign, guys. When you see the Roman armies of Titus the general surrounding Jerusalem, it's time to leave. You see verse 20? But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. See verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And we saw last week, from April to August of A.D. 70, all of this horrific judgment Jesus foretold came to pass. Rome surrounded the city. They cut off water and food supplies. Starvation within months was rampant. In one day, Rome tortured and slit the throats of 12,000 Jewish leader type guys. The bodies were so piled up during these months, there's no time to bury them. They had to just escort them out up beyond the wall of the city. The temple was burned, decimated, Jerusalem destroyed, and by the end, over one million people were slaughtered. Jesus' words, in other words, that He spoke 37 years earlier came to pass. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so we left off there in verse 24. And notice verse 25. Where we pick up. Without seemingly taking a breath, the next thing Jesus says is, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So this week, the big question is this. Has Jesus suddenly changed topics? Did He, from verse 24 to verse 25, transition from answering the question of His disciples when 
will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the signs? Which he answered from verse 5 to 24. But did he all of a sudden make a transition to all of a sudden talking thousands of years later when Jesus will come back in the clouds and bring the end of this age and of this world as we know it and usher in eternity? That's the question. This is what I think at this point. But I have to preach today. So, here, I, here you go. This is what I think. I'm not sure. I don't know. I think they're both valid interpretations. R.C. Sproul summarizes the problem this way. Quote, This passage describes the parousia, the, the second coming of Christ or the coming of Christ, in vivid and graphic images of astronomical perturbations. It speaks of signs in the sky that will be visible and the sound of a trumpet that will be audible. Perhaps no portion of the Olivet Discourse provides more difficulties to the preterist view than this one. Preterist means those who view what we just read here, starting with verse 25, as already having happened in the past, in the first century. Also, <clears throat> Sproul goes on, this portion leads many interpreters to see a clear historical division between references to the destruction of Jerusalem and references to the coming of Christ. These interpreters grant that the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem took place within the time frame of one generation in the first century. But they insist that Christ has yet to appear in the clouds of glory. For preterism, those with this, it's already all happened in the first century, for it to work, they must give a credible explanation for how these verses fit into the time frame of the first century. And so there are the two options. Starting with verse 25 to verse 33. One option. This refers to Jesus' second coming to bring judgment and salvation and usher in eternity. Or the second option is this section, starting with verse 25, also refers to what he had been talking about. The destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in A.D. 70. So what I'm going to do in much too brief is try to give you both views in how they argue them. And then we will close with what Jesus closes about our lives. So first, assuming that this section refers to the second coming of Christ at the end of this present evil age. It goes something like this. From verses 5 to 24, yes, Jesus prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. But the terrible events that took place in A.D. 70 were a picture of the events that will lead up to the second coming of Christ in the final judgment. In other words, 
the last verse, verse 24 of the first section, it ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and ushers in the times of the Gentiles. And then, beginning with verse 25, Jesus jumps ahead to the end of the age that culminates in His return in power and glory to establish God's kingdom on the earth. Jerusalem's destroyed, the times of the Gentiles, and then the very next thing He says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. That language there is Old Testament language. For instance, Joel chapter 2 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, in other words, Jesus here is referring to the end of the world with cosmic disturbances, unnatural catastrophes, outer space in an upheaval. The tides of the world's oceans just rocking And then in the midst of all of that confusion on earth, Jesus will come in the clouds of glory. Verse 27, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And Jesus gets that image there of the Son of Man. He gets it from Daniel chapter 7. The New Testament scholar, Daryl Bach, and this is his view that it refers to the end of the world in Jesus' second coming. He writes, quote, Luke includes the allusion to the clouds because it is the key image of authority. Here is the figure of the consummation arriving with great authority like a deity. The one who returns brings judgment with the power of God. Anyone who heard Jesus use the Son of Man title or who read the Gospel account would know that Jesus was referring to Himself and His return. Now, there are parallel passages. I just want to flip over for a moment to Matthew 24. Because in Matthew 24, the same section we have in Luke, It's put this way, starting with verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect 
from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So, Jesus comes back in the clouds of glory to consummate the kingdom of God. And so he says in verse 28 of our text, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now their redemption doesn't mean you're going to get saved now. He's talking to disciples here. By redemption, He means the redemption of the world. Of the, of the universe. In other words, this is the moment of the promised consummation of the kingdom coming to earth. Paul spoke of redemption this way in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's the flow. He's talking about the second coming. And then Jesus goes on in verses 29-33. to And He told a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. Yeah, they all got that. Okay. So also, when you see these things I've been talking about taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. So He just said, when you see these end time signs, then you can conclude that the not yet aspect of the kingdom that He promised is really close and ready to appear in its consummation. Really, Jesus? Yes, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. That verse there, verse 32, has been very troubling for centuries in the church. It has caused critics to say, look at that! Jesus predicted His second coming. And He's talking to first century disciples. And He said, it'll happen before you die. And so Jesus was wrong. Jesus was a false prophet. Some of you who study philosophy know of Bertrand Russell in the 20th century and he wrote a little book why I'm not a Christian one of his main arguments in his mind was precisely because of that a false prophet he clearly predicted he's coming back so the question is what does Jesus mean when he says this generation will not pass away until all these things happen so here, follow me. If Jesus 
from verse 25 forward, is referring to the end time, to His second coming. And by this generation, He means the generation He's speaking to, His disciples, then clearly Jesus was wrong. A popular way to deal with that problem, particularly among evangelical dispensationalists, is to try to understand the word generation, which translates the Greek word genea, is to try to understand that word to mean here, race. In other words, not generation or a period of about 40 years of the people he's speaking to, but to mean something that has to do with this race. And therefore, he would be meaning something like this. The Jewish people or the Jewish race will not cease to exist until all these things, including a few thousand years later, at least my second coming, happen or take place. I just don't think it could be it, though. The word almost always means generation, period of time, about 40 years, and almost always the people that he's speaking to. But even if there is an outside shot at were race, you have to realize Jesus spoke this originally in Aramaic. Luke's writing it, Matthew's writing it, Mark, all in Greek. And when you get to the word generation in Aramaic, it, there's no option for it to ever mean race. Another view, which we will come to in a few minutes, is that generation means this generation sitting right there with Him on the Mount of Olives in A.D. 33 that He's talking to. But instead of understanding what he had just said as referring to the second coming, he means it's referring to what's going to happen in A.D. 70. In other words, this generation, you Peter, Matthew, will not pass away until all has taken place. Referring to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Another view is the double fulfillment approach that sees a link between what Jesus is doing and prophesying about AD 70 and then thousands of years later at His second coming. Both these horrendous catastrophes and judgment coming. Daryl Bach, the New Testament scholar, summarizes this view this way. Quote, the remarks genre is prophecy, which often makes such a short-term, long-term linkage. As a result, Jesus is saying that this group of disciples that He's speaking to will experience the catastrophe of A.D. 70 within their lifetime. An event that itself pictures the beginning of end-time events. As such, experiencing the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 is as good as experiencing the end. Because one event 
pictures, guarantees, and reflects the other future event. Now, for those who hold that Jesus is referring to the end time of His second coming, probably the best solution is that when He says this generation, He means this generation that I'm talking about in the future. When they begin to see these signs, some off, we're off in the future, that generation will see the end. In other words, the generation that begins to see the signs I'm talking about will also see its end because when those signs come, the end is coming very shortly or quickly. Okay. That's view one. I love this seminary class today, isn't it? That's the first view. Second view. Others are convinced, it's starting with verse 25 to verse 33, also refers to the first century. Also refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. Why? Okay, that's how it goes. Look at the text. Notice the smooth transition from verse 24. Jerusalem is destroyed to the very next thing he says in verse 25. And there will be signs. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to appeal to, to Matthew and Mark for a second. First, in Mark. Here's, here's, here's the transition in Matthew and Mark. Destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen, and then boom. But in those days, after that tribulation, and the tribulation was clearly... Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And Matthew is even more explicit in Matthew 24, 29. So first, the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then, next word, immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So a natural reading, particularly of Matthew, makes it seem that what follows now, what Jesus is going to talk about, happened in conjunction with what happened in A.D. 70. And if Jesus predicted He would come back and consummate the kingdom of God in conjunction with Jerusalem falling in A.D. 70, He was wrong. It didn't happen. And so, the argument goes, what Jesus is doing here is employing Old Testament Language, very common language in the Old Testament when referring to God's earthly destruction and judgment upon peoples and cities and lands. That's what all that moon and stars is about. Now, this view does not understand the language of 
the coming of the Son of Man to refer to Jesus coming from heaven to earth. He will one day. But here, it doesn't doesn't mean that. It means Jesus going from earth to heaven to be vindicated as the Messiah with all authority. So in other words, here's how the argument goes. Of course, you better believe it. we got many other texts that are very clear about Jesus' second coming in the clouds of heaven in His resurrected body to bring judgment and to bring salvation for His bride, the church, and raise them from the dead. But here in Luke 21, in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, that's not what He's referring to. It's not what He is describing But instead, He is describing the Son of Man in the clouds coming to His enthronement and His vindication. Yeah, this Messiah who had just recently experienced under Jerusalem's Jewish leaders, the Jewish council, mockery, repudiation, and murder. Go back, this language. What is this language then? Many times in the Old Testament prophets, they described events that are happening not in outer space, but on earth, in cities, among humanity, horrific bloodshed. They would describe them using astronomical language. So the overthrow of a king in a kingdom. The destruction of a whole city and all the chaos that accompanies it with language of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets in chaos. In other words, when the prophets would do that, they were not using that language to tell us the whole world is ending. Or the whole universe is literally collapsing. Stars are really falling out of the sky. The sun is refusing to actually give forth its light. But it's just common parlance. Common Old Testament language to describe what God was doing on planet earth in judgment, not in outer space. Let me just give you a couple examples. In Isaiah, either listen or turn in Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 10. Here, Isaiah is describing. God's judgment that's going to happen, and we know now that it did happen. He's describing God's judgment on Babylon. Quote, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Now, right there, he clearly doesn't mean the second coming of Christ there. He means the coming of the Lord, a visitation of the Lord in judgment on Babylon. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation 
and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. He's not describing chaos in the heavens. It's the language used to say how horrible God's judgment on Babylon will be. In Ezekiel 32, verses 7 to 8, here is a prophecy referring to Egypt. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. It's language that accentuates the horrificness of the judgment that will be upon them. Or Isaiah 34, verses 4-5 to in His judgment on Edom. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall. Really? Fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Or, or Jesus, a prophet, prophesies about Jerusalem being destroyed and its temple being crumpled to the ground in A.D. 70. says it. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Ezekiel? On Egypt, it's going to be horrific. And the moon will not give its light. Jesus on Jerusalem, and it will be horrific. And the moon will not give its light. So, that's how that view understands this language. Now, for those who hold that view, the, the, the view that Jesus is referring to a symbolic description of judgment upon Israel, that happened in the first century, they have to deal with these words. Now this way Mark says it. Mark 13, 26 forward. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Clearly that has to do with the second coming of Christ. Doesn't it? Well, there are those who say, no, it doesn't have to mean that. Now, okay, okay, help me. Why would they say that? It goes like this. Look, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are all about Jesus. They're answering 
the question, who is this historical figure, Jesus from Nazareth? And from beginning to end, that is the main theme of their narratives. And so now here, when they get to this point, to Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olivet, the destruction of Jerusalem is really all about Jesus and His authority. And Jesus, when He uses this language, they will see the Son of Man. He's alluding to an extremely important passage in the Old Testament. So I'm going to turn there for a moment. To Daniel chapter 7. Starting with verse 13, Daniel... Hundreds of years earlier, gets a vision. And here's the vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He, and he came to the ancient of days. Notice. It doesn't say He came from heaven to earth. But He comes to the Ancient of Days. To God the Father. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that's what Jesus is clearly referring to. And Matthew and Mark make it crystal clear by saying He's getting it from Daniel. So this here in Daniel, is a vision not of a descent from heaven to earth in human history somehow, wrapping up history. That will happen one day, but that's not what's happening in Daniel 7. But it is the Son of Man coming in or with the cloud of heaven to God the Father. To, to the Ancient of Days. To be vindicated is the Sovereign, is the Lord with dominion. To be granted a kingdom that will never come to an end. We know the other language that the New Testament keeps drawing from the psalm. Ancient of days says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, in other words, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was God's judgment on Israel in AD 70, and it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is designed to point us to what has happened in heaven and with authority and to the fact that this rejected, mocked, crucified man 
now has been given authority and dominion over a kingdom that will never come to an end. Okay, but what about verse 27? Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Well, the argument will go, well, see, multiple times in the Gospel, the word to see means perceive. Do you see what I mean? You should have giggled. I didn't mean do you see with your eyes what I mean. I meant did you perceive and understand? Did you grasp it when we say do you see what I mean? So Jesus could be saying then then when they see the fulfillment of this prophecy, they will perceive. They will grasp it. They will understand as they witness or hear about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and of the temple. Wow! All authority in heaven and earth really is given to Jesus of Nazareth. He really is the Son of Man of Daniel 7. And then one more thing that Mark lets us know we've got to deal with with that position. In verse 27 of Mark 13, we hear Jesus say, and then He will send out His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. How would that fit with that position. Well, some of you know that the word angels is not, does not always refer to a particular created being as opposed to a human, but it's an angelic. It, it's the word that basically means messenger. So he could be saying, then in his ascension, he sends out his human messengers with the gospel. And he is gathering, and he's still doing it today, he is gathering his elect in the preaching of the Gospel with these messengers. But even if He meant angelic beings, it's very clear that these other creatures who are non-human angelic beings are sent to the church to minister and to serve. And they've been doing it ever since. And helping the Gospel of Jesus go forth for the last 2,000 years as Jesus, the enthroned Son of Man, is, has been, and will be gathering His elect with the preaching of these messengers, the Gospel. And so then Jesus sums it up with the fig tree parable. As soon as they come out in leaf, these trees you see for yourselves and know that summer's already near. So also when you see these things taking place. Remember the context, like verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God, the reign and the power of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. So that these things would be the armies of Rome surrounding Jerusalem, eventually sacking it. You'll see the dominion of the Son of Man. You'll see the reign of Jesus, 
the Messiah. And so this generation, you're going to see it all, refers to the generation he's speaking to, who would be alive, many of them, in the year AD 70. Okay, there's your two views. But now, as I close, this is what's really pertinent to every soul in here. And that is this. What is true of the warnings to the believers in the first century is true about every generation of Christians. Make sure you are ready for the final cataclysmic second coming of Jesus in judgment and salvation of those who are His. That's what I think Jesus actually and literally means in verses 34 to 36. I think now, either way I take the other ones, He clearly is referring to that. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, dizziness of life, and drunkenness, and cares of this life. Bills, insurance or no, schooling children. Be careful that you're not weighed down. By it, so that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, like an animal unexpecting food, <laughs> dead. Don't let that day come upon you like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, let me tell you why I think he clearly means the end time here. It's because of what Mark lets us know Jesus said. This is how it's put in Mark. And Luke didn't give us his first part, but Jesus said it. But, okay, up to this point, assume that he's only been talking about the AD 70 in the first century. But, now's the transition. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. That's His message. Be alert. 
Jesus the King reigns. He is the Son of Man. All power, all dominion has been given to Him. When that end is coming, and it's coming for every one of us, you better live in light of it. You better be vigilant every day this coming week about decisions you make with your body and with your mind, and with your relationships. You better make those decisions with the consciousness, would I make this decision if in four hours Jesus were to split the heavens and return? That's what Jesus is telling us. That's He's saying, live that way. To be awake, He doesn't mean you don't really want to be caught sleeping at night when He comes back. I wouldn't mind it at all. It doesn't mean you don't want to be caught watching a football game or playing golf. It means your lifestyle. There's a way that those things fit in. And there's a way that they're just another sign that you're a person who is not at all awake. So it's not saying, is He going to come back and I want to miss it? That's not it. It is how you live your life diligently and how you fight your sin. It's what he means when he says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man with what happened historically in A.D. 70 in the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, God has spoken clearly. Jesus is enthroned and He has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell His true temple. The destruction of the temple is another sign that Jesus reigns and is dwelling inside of all who are His. And the destruction of that temple is a guarantee that the other prophecies of the destruction of all evil and sin and a renewal of this world will happen. No one knows when, but it is sure. And His exhortation is, therefore, be vigilant. That just means be vigilant. What do you mean? Okay. That nastiness with which you spoke to your spouse, deal with it. That's what He means. The sinful Sexual temptation that no one knows you struggle with right now, with this last three weeks, he's saying, deal with it. Flee from it. He's saying, be awake. Pray. Serve. Love others. Live a pattern of life that is faithful to your King Jesus. He's saying, be afraid. Beware of living 
and feeling indifferent to Jesus. The best summary that I know of what Jesus must mean here by stay awake, my disciples, is the way He gave it to His Apostle Paul in Romans 13. I'll close with it. Come, Alex. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Stay awake at all times. And the grace of the Lord is here this morning powerfully and particularly powerfully as those of us who are baptized believers will take the cup and hold the bread and wait for us to pray over them and partake of them together. The presence of the Lord in repentance and our hearts drawing near to Him are here in a special way promised to us in the New Testament. Father, so in these moments, would You cause for us wayward shallow-hearted and minded people at times cause these words these gracious words be awake your salvation is nearer than when you woke up yesterday cause them to go deep into our hearts and to infiltrate our sin and to eradicate it bring repentance and bring the joy and the refreshing of your Holy Spirit.